Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Hulu. Did you know that Hulu has live sports? Watch your favorite teams and the biggest games all season with no cable or satellite subscription required. Get 60-plus live and on-demand channels, tons of shows and movies, and watch on the go on your favorite devices with Hulu Plus Live TV. Learn more at Hulu.com. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Watch today. Today, I was joined by my good buddy, Sean Fennessy, filling in for Andy. And Sean dropped by to talk about that forgotten of blockbuster superhero franchises, the X-Men. X-Men Dark Phoenix is coming out in June. I kind of didn't even really think about that or remember it. We've talked so much about what we're anticipating in 2019 over the last few episodes. And somehow X-Men kind of flew under the radar, but a trailer came out this week. So I had Sean come by to talk about the kind of story of this franchise, which spans decades, numerous movie stars, numerous directors, and is now at this crossroads where... Disney is going to come into ownership, essentially, of the X-Men IP. And we'll see where that ha- what happens with that and whether this is the end of something or the beginning of something. Who knows? We're also... We just got to talk about Jennifer Lawrence continuing to be Mystique. What happened there, J-Law? I was also joined in the second half of this episode by the creators of High Maintenance, Ben Sinclair and Katia Blickfeld. And they were really awesome. We talked about just where this show has come from since when it was like a Vimeo web series to now, which is it's completing its third series on HBO uh, in just a couple of weeks. And it's been a great season, season three. So stick around for that. We'll be back on Monday with another episode of The Watch. Thanks for listening. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio... It's the real age of apocalypse. It's Sean Fantasy. Whoa, what's up? What's up, Chris? How are you doing? Uh, I've just been thinking a lot about the X-Men, as I do. I wanted to t- bring Sean on. I mean, I wanted to just, just see how he was doing after what was a marathon award season push. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I thought we could just go green book shot for shot here. Is that cool? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, I've been studying it closely. I do uh, three rewatches every night yeah. uh, since since August, since last August. <laughs> yeah. So I've seen it about 3,000 times. You're doing like a Topher Grace recut? Yeah, yeah I'm, do, I'm doing like the Francois Truffaut Hitchcock book yeah. on Green Book, so I'm excited about that. Fantasy Farrelly, I like yeah, it. Thank you. Uh, Sean is actually here because I was kind of trying to think of something to talk about today, and luckily an X-Men trailer came out. Luckily? Eh, not even luckily, that's the thing. Is X-Men Dark Phoenix trailer came out, uh, directed by Simon Kinberg, who's been sort of the kind of behind-the-scenes creative showrunner almost of this saga in the last, say, 10 years, ever since they kind of started rebooting things um, with Michael Fassbender and James McAvoy and everybody else from Days of Future Past and everything. And I forgot that this movie was coming out. Well, I think it's been delayed once now. Uh Uh-huh. And the next X-Men movie after that, New Mutants, has been delayed twice now. Yes. So To the extent where we're not even totally certain if that's actually coming. That was a... (sighs) I think it will come out, but there's not a lot of fanfare about it. Right. And uh, this is sort of strange, though, because we, Andy and I talk so much about franchise wars and like— Wait, who's Andy? Andy's this guy who <laughs> sometimes appears on the podcast and often uh, will talk to me about my my cooking regimen. <laughs> no, but like Andy and I like often talk about the fran- the major franchises and the ways in which DC or Marvel or Star Wars are kind of angling around. But we've kind of like—X Men's sort of the forgotten blockbuster franchise, even though— even at its worst, Apocalypse still did five hundred million at the box office. Yeah, those movies are still hugely successful. It's just I just don't think they're very good. Yeah, 
And yeah. and that's tricky because I know for you and I particularly, we grew up as sincere X-Men fans and we think that there's a lot of meaningfulness in those characters. Yes. So it's unfortunate that now as like what we think of as comic book movies are starting to really mature. Yeah. Starting to find new ways to tell their stories. You know, there's been a lot of talk specifically about Thor Ragnarok and Black Panther, but I would argue even movies like Aquaman and Deadpool are doing things that are way more sophisticated and interesting and just weird. Yes. And the X-Men movies feel like a like a relic from the past. They're like the Oakland A's. It's like yes. everybody caught up. Like they had such a they had a lead because this the source material I think if I had to describe what makes the X-Men so appealing to me is that there's lots of comic books that are complete fantasies. And then there are lots of comic books that are keep you grounded kind of in your younger self, like, say, Spider-Man. But the X-Men, when I was reading it in high school, was the first comic that made me—they introduced me to, like, adult themes. That it's made a, me it, feel yes. like, oh, like I don't really know what life is like because of what these people are going through. And, you, you know, I would go on to learn that more through literature, but— I always thought they were a great on-ramp to allegory. Yeah. You know, to like yeah. to, to looking at understanding what the text is and then what the meaning is. You know, I recently listened to you and uh, Bill and Chuck talk about uh, uh, Reality Bites. Yeah, yeah. And Bill's uh, resistance to the guy who overanalyzes things. But I always thought comic books were this interesting way to think about society. Now, that's that's like a pat way of thinking about this stuff now. And we talk about comic book movies so much and what these characters represent. But X-Men, more than anything— was the thing that made me think about the idea of the outcast, the person who doesn't fit in. It's so on the surface yes. with those stories. And they seem so primed for this moment. And yet, I don't know, there's something like base yeah. line about it. These movies are also a really interesting lens through which to think about the movie industry in terms of movie stars and also the movie business in terms of the way in which these properties kind of get moved around and run by different people. It was something that was a huge success for Brian Singer earlier in his career and then is going to be one of the final chapters of his sort of career obituary where, you know, his stewardship of Apocalypse kind of, I think, somewhat goes hand in hand with the Bohemian Rhapsody story of just kind of, it sounded like Apocalypse was a troubled production and then obviously Bohemian Rhapsody was an incredibly troubled production. Um, Fox kept it a little bit more under lock and key during Apocalypse. Yes. But some of the issues of him just not showing up on shoot days, there there were a lot of rumors and reports about what may or may not have happened on those sets. Right. And then there's also the really interesting thing. I mean, we, we joke a lot about Chris Evans's nine-picture deal or different people in the MCU having, like, these huge contracts that they have to fulfill uh, over the years. Like, Col- Kobe Smulders is probably going to—she's got the Bryce Harper deal. Yep. But— uh, <laughs> I think Jennifer Lawrence does too. Well, that's what I was getting to. It's like the legitimately like just shocking. I, I can't think of an analog, but it's like how shocking it is to see Jennifer Lawrence be the fifth name on the call sheet in an X-Men movie. And obviously, I think it, without spoiling anything, I mean, it's spoiled in the trailer. The indication is that she is released from her from her duties. And she this may movie. be sacrificed. Yeah. But it's if you kind of think about it, it's like basically like what if after... Pretty Woman, Julia Roberts, was, like, the fifth person. She dies in, like, the first scene of Mission Impossible. I can't even explain, like, how weird it is to see somebody who's supposed to be the biggest female movie star in the world among them, and it's just, like, I stand next to Michael Fassbender for 50% of this movie. It's not just that she signed a bad deal. It's the terms under which she signed it. So I it was I was so struck watching the Dark Phoenix trailer to see her and her ex-boyfriend, Nicholas Holt, both unrecognizable in blue face paint. I was like, this is absurd. That the, 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 they've chosen to cast these beautiful people yeah. and they have buried them underneath these characters who candidly like are not top five or even top 10 X-Men characters. Sure. Like, Beast is important. Mystique is not that important. No, it was like a, 
I, I, I don't know what that was. Like, was that a, like a pre-Hunger Games deal that she signed that I think so. wound up being bad and that they just couldn't get her out of? Or maybe there was a point where she was like, maybe I'll do a Mystique movie. But there's almost something about the blue face paint that makes me think like she was like, what can we do so that this is not searchable on Google image? <laughs> so that when people are looking for pictures of me, they're not like, oh yeah, she was in that fucking X-Men movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's possible. I, I just, the, the, the funny thing about these movies is I think that the MCU has very effectively, and to a lesser extent, the uh, DCEU, I guess you'd call it, has made stars of people who are sort of mid-tier hopefuls. Mm-hmm. And the X-Men movies has worked with a lot of true blue stars. You know, Michael Fassbender, James McAvoy, Jennifer Lawrence. This is even in the second generation of people. Oscar Isaac. Oscar yeah. Isaac. They, they, you know, Jessica Chastain is in, the, in Dark Phoenix. There are a lot of people who are recognizable names who have been big stars, kind of wasted and buried under what seem like schlocky circa 90s affectations mm-hmm. of what movie making is. There's just nothing modern or there doesn't appear to be anything modern about Dark Phoenix. And – you know, I I think that my first reaction essentially was like, this is probably the last one of these movies we're really going to see because Disney, of course, bought Fox. Right. I think that that was the other thing I wanted to talk about a little bit was, you know, they, they did this initial uh, Brian Singer, Brett Ratner series of films with Patrick Stewart. And then there was some inter interperiod movies where you had the good and bad Wolverine movies. Um, And then you've got the more recent ones that were started by Matthew Vaughn and then taken over by Brian Singer and now replaced by uh, Kinberg that kind of cover this McAvoy, Fassbender, Jennifer Lawrence period. And Kinberg has talked about how, you know, what he wanted was basically to cap this X-Men iteration while also making some suggestions about what could happen in the future. And Kinberg works on Star Wars and is like a Disney homie. So I'm sure if were Disney to take over X-Men, I wouldn't be surprised to know, find out that Kinberg was executive producing or running that. But it does seem like they are wrapping this up right at the time when MCU could use incredible arms out of the bullpen. Agree. I, I think that um, it'll be interesting to see how much they pull from the new bench mm-hmm. because casting somebody like Sophie Turner to play Jean Grey, I, I thought was pretty savvy and, and seemed like an on-ramp to the next generation. Yeah. So that's not necessarily a bad idea, but if this movie is not successful, will will they want to just scrap the entire cast and start over again, even if Kinberg is still involved, and bring in all new actors and then integrate them into Wakanda and into the Thor universe, yeah. into all the figures and, you know, Spider-Man and all, all the things that are actively working for MCU. I don't know. I think you're right that there may be a, a full-stop rebrand of the Avengers that includes, like, Wolverine yeah. and includes Deadpool and includes people that we didn't expect. There have been so many iterations of those superhero teams over the years in the com- comic books that there's more flexibility than you might think. I'm not really sure if they're going to keep them separate or apart or, yeah, or together. I, that's, a, I mean, that, that's also the thing that I think interests me as much as anything else about the the f- about the prevalence of comic books in movie culture now because the rules of comic books are so much more loose than the mo- rules of movies or at least the ones that we're like used to. We're used to you cast this person and then I'm going to watch this person be Batman for three movies. And now that's starting to break down a lot. That's starting to, you know, we're starting to see like the Warner Brothers guys are obviously like nobody gives a shit about our five-year plan. If we can come with like a cool movie and Will Smith's just not going to be in Suicide Squad, and James Gunn's just going to have a new Suicide Squad, I don't think anybody's going to care. They're taking a page out of the MCU, though, insofar as they're going director first. Yeah. They're saying, I want to work with James Gunn, I want to work with James Wan, I want to work with Todd Phillips. I want their vision of what these movies should be. Not our vision, but their vision of our characters. 
I think that's smart. I think also the X-Men could really use, you know, like a Taika Waititi. They could use some some experimentation. It's a, it's a dour series. It's, it is. It's, a, it's like a very, like, we're outsiders and we're ostracized and the world is ending. You know, I'm probably the biggest supporter of Deadpool 2 at this company. But I, <laughs> I Deadpool, that's fair to say. Deadpool 2, I, I thought was, and I, I acknowledge that it's like, it's not that important or that good. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was, frankly, like the best X-Men movie I've seen since X2. Mm-hmm. And it really was kind of an X-Men movie. It brought in a lot of characters. It was very, uh, it was very clever about positioning itself inside of that universe. And that felt to me like a way forward for them. So a little bit more self-referential, a little bit more carefree. Dark Phoenix does not seem to be that at all. No, it seems very much... Up, it actually, like, if you watch the Apocalypse trailer and then the Dark Phoenix, Phoenix trailer, they pretty much seem of a piece. Yeah, and the other thing that we're, we haven't said is we've seen this movie already. Yeah. I mean, Brett Radner made this movie, yeah. The Last Stand, and it was bad, but he made it. And the idea that there's they're going back to something they've already done so soon, but not reinventing it in any meaningful way tonally or with characters, they've just kind of recast some of the figures. I don't know, it just feels like a... It feels unnecessary, yeah. you know, for lack of a better word. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an asset, and you kind of have to get what you can out of the asset while you still have Jennifer Lawrence and Sophie Turner under contract. And I, I don't know how those contracts turn over when they go to if they go to Disney and how Disney will use it. X Men also, I think, in its fans' conception of it, is a little bit edgier than most of what Disney likes to put out. And Bob Iger's talked about that, where he's like. There's just simply things that we cannot do in a Disney movie. Like, you can't smoke in Disney movies. You can't yeah, do Alan it. Horn just talked about yeah, this. Alan Horn yeah, yeah, Alan yeah. Horn said that. Yeah, Alan Horn said that. And that is a longstanding thing. I just think that those movies, they're going to have to figure out what the branding is for a Fox movie, what the branding is for a Disney movie, whether they'll relaunch like a Buena Vista-style uh, company that where they'll put more adult fare. Yeah. Like, it's unclear how Disney is going to handle this mega merger. What, what, what is your... Do you have a favorite X-Men movie? Logan. Yeah. Do you think that that was the closest they got to greatness um i i think i've watched one in three the x-men the first and third x-men movies more than i'll ever watch logan mm-hmm. but i think that's about as that is like up right beneath the dark knight tier for me in terms of how good a superhero movie can be it's interesting. I feel like my mind has changed a lot on that. I used to has say it? that all the time, and I, I find those movies tough to watch now. Now, some of it is just the general Brian like Singer. Logan or, or no, the I, first no, I love ones. Logan. Yeah. I love Logan. The, the, the early X Men movies. I remember when X Two came out. I was like, wow, they did it. They made an, they made a comic book movie that I think is good. Yeah, yeah and yeah. I saw it again recently, and I was like, eh, yeah, I can yeah. I can imagine those early comic book movies having like a really like bad replayability. They're very expository. Uh huh. You know, they're very like, my name is Charles Xavier, <laughs> yes. and I am a man who looks at Newtons and says, I see the future of the world. But the funny thing about that was like, that was back when they were like, nobody's going to know who these fucking people are. That's man. true. Only no, nerds read comic it's, books. We have to explain who the bald guy is. You're right. It's yeah. all contextual. And that helped make those movies successful. It helped bring in people who didn't care about the comic books the way that we did. Yeah. Okay. So that's coming out in June. And Andy and I have been talking a lot recently about things that we're anticipating. At this period, so it's the end of February for you, and you're, you're only a week out of Oscars. People talk to me like about the Oscars like I've just given birth or something. Well, you know? but like, I, like if you fine. see you, but like show. you're so Sean obviously has the big picture podcast. He does an awards, he did an awards pod with Amanda within the big picture feed and then would do an interview show and also do one offs here and there about top five movies from different directors or, or whatever. And so there was like an incredible amount of labor going on. You're also incredibly invested in a world in which only seven movies exist. Yeah. Yeah. So what's it like when you get to the other side and you're like, 
the world is your oyster, but also now there's like all this stuff. You I mean you're going to festivals coming up? You too. Yeah. I mean, you want to go behind the curtain on this a little bit? I just kind of like like I I have felt I always feel relief at this time of year. Mm-hmm. Do you feel? Is there like any kind of like postpartum depression here for you? You know, I I genuinely you like, gave birth to the Green Book. <laughs> Uh, you never premiered your character Johnny Greenbook, unfortunately. I feel like that guy was someone I was happy to break out in front of you and Amanda, but like just after Big Nick's uh, tweets got got Big Nick Velaga, canceled, yeah. yeah, I felt like um, Johnny Greenbook was a guy that I was like the guy in New Jersey who's just like. Green Book is a great movie. <laughs> it's essentially Mike Francesa too. Yes. Mike Francesa came along yes. and did Johnny Greenbook, Ma- Mahershala, Mahershala. Look. <laughs> This movie is a good movie. <laughs> I uh, To answer your question, I like event movies, and I like when movies are events. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very excited to see um, Captain Marvel. I, I don't know how good Captain Marvel will be. I think That's next week. It's ne- it comes out next week. I, I we, You and I just saw Triple Frontier. Yeah. I, that's a Netflix movie, but I was like, this is an event to me. Yes. Um, I'm very excited to see us at South by Southwest. Yeah. I I like the idea of sort of the weekly churn of movies. I still feel like it is the most digestible and enjoyable and easy to eventize thing that we have in popular culture. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I've been such a sincere fan of this podcast for so long, but I, it's so much harder for me now to have a, a tactile relationship to the things you guys are talking about because not just because I'm seeing so many movies, but because there's so many shows. Yeah, of course. And I mean, I, we, I have the, the folks from High Maintenance on afterwards and not to go behind the curtain on that either, but even when I was talking to them about what the watch is, and I was like, yeah, it's changed a lot in the last two years where I think, you know, three or four years ago, Andy and I would just pick a show and we would do pretty much every episode of that show for the season. And now it's like every week we're talking about whatever the new show is. And even in the next six weeks, between Killing Eve and everything else that's coming out in the next couple of weeks, I think we'll probably wind up talking a lot about Killing Eve, but not in the way that we used to be like, let's just do the Homeland episode four. Yeah. You know? like let's, Hollywood let's, perspectives. Yeah, days, yeah. You know? And yeah. it's just it's just changed a lot because the volume. The other thing that I like about the the new movie stuff too, and, and honestly, there are good movies coming out in January and February. Like it's the, the calendar stuff has changed so much the mm-hmm. same way that it has in television. But you know, just this morning I talked to Sebastian Lelio who made this movie called Gloria Bell, which is a remake of his own movie called Gloria. Okay. Uh, he's a Chilean filmmaker. He won the Oscar for A Fantastic Woman a couple of years oh, ago. Oh, yeah. And Gloria Bell stars Julianne Moore. It's an A24 movie. It's a really... Nice, really well-made, thoughtful piece of work. And it's just, it's arriving with like not a huge amount of fanfare, but it's just a very good movie. And I'm excited to talk to people who did that stuff. You know, I, I, I've i been talking about Black Klansman for like nine months. That's what I'm saying. So I am ready to move on for the most part from that stuff. The Green Book thing, I would I actually would make the case that I could probably have a conversation about why Green Book won every week for another two months. Yeah, and I bet, honestly, the further we get from the radius of that night that people will... Because right now, it seems like the dialogue is almost like... It it all seems fake. It's like, were there really guys out there who were like, don't tell me what to like? I'm going to vote for Green Book? It's impossible for us to know. I mean, there's just no way to essentially report on how this happened. On, uh, On the show that Amanda and I do yesterday, I just said... I just want to release the votes. Yeah. Just release the votes. I, I just don't know what the downside of that is other than essentially giving up some power to the public. But I think releasing the votes would be such an incredible scientific and cultural experience for people to understand how this shit really works. And I think that that brings people closer to the Oscars. Yeah. Even if they don't like Green Book. And also, a lot of people do like Green Book. Yeah. And it's not even like release the ballots. It's just like release just people the, the numbers. You yeah. don't have to like expose people and be like, 
this guy who pretends to be woke actually voted for for Bohemian Rhapsody or something. It's like right. it's like just like so let's see the numbers. Be curious. And I think everybody, the hardest thing for people to understand is the preferential ballot. And you and Amanda did such a good I you know job of explaining that over the c- couple of weeks. But like. It's it's the hardest thing that someone like my mom, who's watched every Oscars for like 50 years, <laughs> and still is like, oh, okay. Didn't seem like anybody liked that movie, but I guess it won, you know? like Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else smaller, aside from the Captain Marvel, uh, the Endgame, um, Us, the stuff that's coming out in the next couple of weeks that you're, if not already seen and want to recommend, or that you're especially fired up about? I was entertained by The Inventor Out for Blood in Silicon Valley, which is uh, our friends at HBO oh, yeah. putting out Alex Gibney's documentary. I believe that's March 16th. That's the story of Elizabeth Holmes and her fraudulent company, Theranos. So that's like not her real voice. No, that is her real voice. The baritone. That's yes. like she didn't, she, is she a, hasn't she, like changed that to like seem different. I don't believe so. I mean, there's no way for us to know. She's interviewed at length in the film. Okay. And um, she sticks to it. And that is the voice that she uses. What does she think of Green Book? Should I do Johnny Green Book, but as uh, Elizabeth Holmes? Johnny Green Book Holmes. Yeah, that's a good, <laughs> that's a that's good character work for you, I think. Uh, I, I, I would recommend that. It, I think if you've read a lot about it or read John Kerry's Bad Blood, you maybe don't need to watch that movie. But, you know, I was at dinner last night talking to some people about it and they were not familiar with the story at all. And if yeah. you're not, it'll it'll blow your head off. It's just a crazy act of high-level fraud and, and, and scamming and we're in this scamming moment. And it's Alex Gibney who... Is just the one of the most the steadiest hands in documentary, so I would recommend that. Okay, that's a good one. Fantasy, thank you so much for coming by, man. Chris, I love to be on this show, and um, send my love to Andy Greenwald. <laughs> Will do. I'm so happy to be joined by Ben and Katya from High Maintenance. Guys, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm so glad you guys came by because it's just been this weird thing where High Maintenance has been in my life for like the better part of a decade, and I, I was thinking a lot about how it how it must have been changing for you guys over the course of this of since 2012 i guess is when the vimeo shows started airing and i wanted to sort of open up with this sort of very broad question um i don't do you, either of you guys watch billions nope. show no no i haven't had a chance yet okay so the guy who does billions uh which is also like a new york show i guess in some ways uh he talked a lot recently about how billions is kind of like the show where it's just the repository for everything that he's interested in and it's so it's not necessarily as much like we're trying to make sure we tell this one story as much as it's just become this canvas that I can just put everything that I'm like food and art and music and whatever I'm interested in can go into this show somehow. Mm-hmm. I mean, and this is kind of weird, but like that kind of sounds also like what high maintenance could be too for you guys, right? It very much is. Definitely. I think I went into this season specifically saying I want to see what lights me up personally. So yeah, that's really closely aligns with that. Yeah. Our budget is quite different than <laughs> yeah. the billions. So I think a lot of our interests are more maybe in scaled back. Yeah, scaled back. And it's more like, oh, this type of person that I observed when I was grocery shopping, like, who are they? And then trying to sort of dig into that, you know? Yeah. It's new, but it also feels like that's a specifically like a New York thing where like you get to see all these different kinds of people doing regular everyday shit every all, all the time and you can stay in touch with that kind of thing. I guess we take that for granted because yeah. we don't live out here in LA, but like, yeah, I still ride the subway yeah. uh, quite regularly. And it's actually, I feel like I'm at work when I'm doing it. Yeah, the subway <laughs> yeah. is yeah. a good spot to people watch. But I mean, I I do it everywhere. I've done it the last couple of days that we've been here. I go to like a Starbucks at 8 a.m. and sit there for a couple of hours and like watch who comes through. And 
you guys have good people watching in LA too. It's just different. Yeah, oh, yeah. You just do it from car windows more. Yeah, than, yeah. I think the main difference I've I've come to because I'm from Southern California. One of the biggest differences is just you can like really control what kind of interactions you have with people in in LA. You can really yeah. You're not you don't have to like interact with too many people that you don't want to interact with. You can just roll up your window. And I think in New York, I think that's just not an option. No, as that's often. like it's part of the appeal. You're, yeah, I guess. it's yeah. part of the appeal for for some of us, and then others probably it's their nightmare. That you can't, you're not going to be able to uh, control what kind of interactions you have when you walk down the street. It's true. The, the, the room for chaos is greater in New York. But I will say because of our bul- our social media bubbles and like our blogs and our mm-hmm. go here and go there, I feel like I'm retreading the yeah. same paths as this, another community of like-minded individuals in both cities. Sure. I feel a little uh, bubbled and you know, that, there's a better well, word. Well, especially for it. if yeah. you like go to the east side, I think, and you're hanging out at those spots. I like we, you know, we're staying in Beverly Hills right now just because of the hotel that yeah. HBO put us up in, and that is not the same crowd. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's a different, different group of people. Yeah, that's like I mean, one of the sort of beautiful things about high maintenance is the way in which every episode starts, and you're just kind of like, I have no idea where we're going to go next. I not in a like the lost sort of way, like, and like, are they going to get off the island? But mm. I have no idea who I'm going to meet, and I don't know who this person's going to meet. And I have no, and that's kind of the promise of New York City, right? It's like you step out of your apartment and you're like, oh, anything could happen. And I'm, it might actually be awful, you know, like, yeah. but that kind of, you're right, you can control that in LA a lot more because you can just like get in a Honda and listen to a podcast yes. and go right back to your house that's like a little bit off the street. Yeah, you know? yeah and um, watch programming tailored for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I uh, do you feel like as you guys have gotten older and as high maintenance has become so much of your lives, not that it wasn't before, but does it change your relationship to the show where it goes, there's like a, a switch that's flipped from this is this personal expression and maybe this thing that we were really like pushing for early on to this thing now that has its life of its own and that other people feel like such a personal investment in? It's really such a complicated question. (laughs) It's like the way that this show has kind of transformed our experience of, of living in New York, experience of like really belief and credo and when we look at people who live outside of New York like how what a division sometimes it feels like and how my experience of New York is couldn't be more different from yeah. when I arrived there 10 years ago just because I have an awareness that I am like contributing to the story of New York and I'm visible because I have a beard and <laughs> I'm balding and yeah. like I'm easy to pick out of a crowd so New York feels like high school, a high school to me now. I feel like when I like walk around my neighborhood, it's like junior year of high school. <laughs> and it's and it's like, hey, hey. And then I don't know. I I think I'm a little less in it because I'm looking at everything with a journalistic eye. Huh. Uh so I feel a little not detached is not the right word, but a little um opportunistic in terms of most of my New York interactions and observations. Yeah, I think things that maybe would have gotten me down, you know, five, ten years ago in New York now has a totally different color to it. Because even if it is something that's annoying or getting me down a situation, 
I can now I have like I have a place to put it. Yeah. So to speak, like what you were just saying. Can you think of something? For oh my example? god, yeah, like even right now, like, okay, my wa- my dishwasher hasn't worked properly maybe the whole time I've lived in my apartment. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. And you know, all it would take would be to just talk to my landlord about it and probably we could get that figured out. But because of like an interaction that I had with them at the top of my lease, I've like been not wanting to. And it's just really turned into like a, a real saga. I mean, this is stupid, but no, it's just it's, but it's like this annoying thing and I find myself being stressed about it. But then I'm like, well, this is also like a this could be part of a, a character trait for somebody. Like and it's actually not that unique. I mean, I know other people who suffer uh weird things in their space because they don't wanna interface with their landlord yeah, but you yeah. know what I mean like just like things that are inconveniences in life or you have like a bad day because of this show it's become like ev- it's that whole Nora Ephron like everything is copy yeah. kind of a, a yeah. thing is it, and it becomes it's a nice coping mechanism too that it, it helps yeah. so much I think even Ben and I like when we were together and having any sort of relationship difficulty like it there, I can't tell you how many conversations ended with well we can write about it <laughs> but you know? I, I, I've been doing that a lot of my life. Yeah, I honestly sure. have been. Like I have the what forces not forces the thing I tell myself when I'm about to take a risk is like, well, if nothing else, you'll have something to talk story. about and a good story to tell when you're decrepit and your legs don't work or whatever. So, I, I've definitely, I, I it, it's interesting because you want to be involved in what's going on. You don't want to look at everything objectively and be like, this is going to benefit me somehow or something like that. You just want to kind of be in it. So there is part of me that would like to have better control over when I'm being opportunistic about storytelling and when I'm just enjoying it and really reveling in the feeling of being a part of a community of New York and not just reporting on what life is like there. Sure. One of the things I've always wanted to ask you guys is that when I first started watching the show, it felt very much like an extension of the independent movies that I really loved when I was growing up and when I was like in high school and early college, like Richard Linklater and Jim Jarmusch and Hal Hartley. And it really, uh, you know, it had this secret world that you kind of knew was always out there, but never got to live in until you saw the show. And then you would have moments that you were like, this is like a high maintenance moment or this is like a Jim Jarmusch moment. But did you ever think that it would be like, a TV show. No. Like, did you grow up being like, I can't wait one day, I really want to make a TV show? No. No. TV probably means a lot, a different thing to people of our generation yeah. than it means to like a 25-year-old who's like, TV is just like the best thing to possibly to be doing. But we grew up with like LA Law and it was like, yeah. that's cool. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I didn't really see myself as part of that equation. Yeah. And not in that way. I mean, I think I always wanted, and Ben, um, you can answer for yourself, but I think we, I think we both kind of always wanted in in some fashion, um, but I never thought it would be in this capacity. And I, you know, I did casting before I made high maintenance, and I think that was sort of my safe, like, per- or I perceived that as like a l- lower stakes way of being involved. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I mean, we, you, and I were both 
raised on TV. For I don't know sure. about raised on TV but, for yeah. you, but like, no, I've seen them all. I've seen yeah. every show that was made in my. It's it's not surprising that it's peak TV right now because all of the people who were raised yeah. on TV are now the age at which they make the decisions for the culture. So sure, yeah, no wonder TV is going right now. And in twenty years, it's going to be like Instagram, like you know, short like branded content right. or whatever that people are going <laughs> to. It's going to be peak branded content. Yeah. So I, you know. We that was for us like there were so many shared television experiences that we turned into inside jokes, which were which was ultimately a bonding process mm-hmm. for us of just, like when you guys were, were yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 we still say to this day like <laughs> like Carson Larry Appleton <laughs> yeah like, and my, that's a that's definitely one yeah. Perfect Strangers has not had its like friends life yet I know <laughs> will it ever I don't know I don't know there's a bunch of like those sitcoms that I'm like they feel like lost but then it's so funny like the the margin of friends catching on I guess it's kind of obvious that friends would catch on but like you know Mad About You doesn't like right. have like this huge second life and you know <laughs> oh it will uh, yeah the Mad About You renaissance is coming yeah was there Anything like when you, you know, 2012 kind of dovetails with this era of television kind of taking over, uh, I think, an area of storytelling that we had left to movies and that that, that sort of middle ground of movie that was like, you know, a, a relationship drama or like a kind of exploration of a, of a walk of life that you didn't ordinarily see. Was there a show that you saw before that time, around that time, where you're like, oh, maybe this is, maybe this is like a way forward for us? I mean, we mentioned a lot of times that we watched Six Feet Under right before we made this, but I'm not even sure that that's the thing that really influenced us. I feel like Party Down really influenced us. Really? because, Yeah, because it was clear that they were making that show on a really low budget, but that wasn't impacting their storytelling and that they kind of seemed like they used it to their advantage. Like yeah. we liked how every episode they the were reset. in a different— Yeah, it was a reset and a different space and um, kind of that procedural kind of quality. But the, the tone and the realistic— relationships that in six feet under Mm -hmm. that felt like the most true to life show that you and I had seen. And also they went on dream sequence. They had, yeah, Yeah, there's like some surreal moments in that show that they kind of seamlessly weave together with reality. That seemed cool. And there was that feeling like, Oh, I know that person. Mm -hmm. Oh, I've had that relationship dynamic. Yeah. This fight feels really real. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, a lot of the Nate stuff with, with, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so I wanted to ask a little bit as a TV show, the experience of watching it is so distinctive that sometimes like the stitches don't show. So I can't, you know, when I watch like a mystery show, I'm like, okay, I can see this is the A plot and this is the B plot and here's the red herring and here's mm-hmm. the Chekhov's gun. But what are some of the structures behind the scenes of, of high maintenance when you're writing an episode and, and sort of plotting out a season? Is it the way that I would probably, like most listeners for the watch would say, you kind of have a whiteboard and like there are these beats you're going to hit, but is it different for high maintenance or is it actually, are you guys more traditional than we might think. Ooh. I don't know how traditional we are. All we've done is this show. Yeah, we only know what this show feels like to produce or to to write. The writers have told us it's not like another writer's room who have come into our writer's room. I've had a lot of writers that work with us say, wow, it was so cool to be part of that room because it taught me that there's another way to do it. Mm -hmm. Like that makes me want to go have my own writer's room now that I know you can do it like this. I don't know what like this means. Do but. you guys have like golden rules when people are walking in and we bring, have, bring outside people and you're like, okay, think about it like this. And every year like, we get better at trying to get people in on this kind of customized to us writing 
schedule and process. and process. You know, we have like what works on our show, typically what doesn't work on our show. There is like a rubric of like an intro, character development, situation development, call for weed, <laughs> then the B story yeah. where the weed is happening, then like the weed deal, less. then it's a climax, mm. and then it's a button. So it's like eight. We have like every episode with like eight cards to match that rubric and always it breaks the rubric. Yeah. But the rubric is often focus, a, yeah. a place to start. Yeah. So it's like a, it's a, it's like some notes to deviate and improv yes. from, but I would imagine g- given the fact you've referenced the budget limitations, like the, the show feels very easygoing, but I would imagine like you, you're pretty close to like, you guys are running on a pretty tight schedule. You're like, oh, it's not easy to make at all. That, it's not. And, it's, and what I was surprised by when we switched over to television after doing it for for web and and not being union and all that sort of a thing, it is so hard and expensive to recreate reality. Like to be to just you know have ten people run out you know run and gun on the street and like grab stuff and and get like real life and and all of that. Versus like trying to, you know, shutting down a street and rolling up with a bunch of trucks and having extras portray people on the street and all like to do that and also have it seem as real as what you would see in real life. Like that is crazy. Like that is (laughs) like it it costs so much money and and takes so much time and resources. It's like it really must be an annoying paradox because you're like, I'm spending so much money to make something look like we're not spending any money It makes me crazy. Like we'll go for location scout and I'm like, do we have to do anything to this place? Like, can we just like roll up and shoot? Because like that's what we used to do. And you know, to an extent we can sort of do that a little bit, but no, like people want to put their stuff away a lot of times and like all those kinds of things. It's interesting. It is costs so much money because in the history of this industry that we're in, so many people had been abused and yeah. Yeah. the costs are to protect people from being abused by other people, which mm-hmm. I couldn't be happier about. But it is really, really conflated like what we're doing here, which is taking a box that takes 24 pictures a second and a sound and a light and we're Focusing it on a subject, yeah. and they talk. Yeah, you need somebody now. You need somebody who's, like, sanctioned to make sandwiches. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly, all that stuff of, like, who can touch what yeah. and who can do this and that is just, like, that has been very educational slash annoying <laughs> at times. I was watching, I don't know if you had a chance to see High Flying Bird, that Steven Soderbergh movie, no. that's, and it was on Netflix, and so he shot it on iPhone. Um, yeah. And it's, like, it's about an NBA, a basketball agent who's uh, working while there's a strike in the NBA. It doesn't say NBA, but it's supposed to be the NBA. But, you know, he shot it on iPhone, and he shot it with, like, a micro budget. So they're walking. It's Andre Holland, and he's, like, walking through Battery Park. And you're like, wait a second. And you realize, like, they didn't have to shut anything down. Mm-hmm. It's just Steven Soderbergh walking behind him with a phone. Yeah. So you're, and you're, I was like, oh, my God. Like, that's why you never see, like, people walking across the street in New York City because you'd have to shut down, like, th- like major arteries of traffic for the most I mean, busiest if, city in the if, world. Yeah, if you're really committed to getting a certain kind of shot, with, you know, with things— you know, moving in a choreographed way. Like, there are definitely workarounds sure. to be able to get the quote-unquote real thing. I mean, we definitely do a sort of hybridization model, it feels like. I don't know. Our producers are always telling us, like, we're— This we're, is impossible. <laughs> well, no. They, I think they've been really good at delivering yeah. for us. And they—but they do always say, like, no, when when they are talking to people that they're hiring for, like, department heads and, you know, making the deals with the unions and all that stuff, like, they do have to explain a little bit, like, hey, we're a bit of, like, a—, a 
anomaly. Like yeah. we're like we use a lot of indie film tactics, but we are uh, like above board, you know? sure, <laughs> like, yeah. like legit show. But like there's these sort of little elements that seep in that feel like no budget film, you know, indie filmmaking. Just to touch quickly on the on the writing part of that, I was also curious about um, when you're do you know there, there's so many sort of indelible characters, but ironically those characters then disappear from from the show a lot of the times. And I was specifically you know wondering about like uh, in in Mash uh, like Corey, how much of a backstory Corey has for you guys versus what we see, and also how much the guy knows versus what Ben knows and, and you know, like the, the sort of magic trick that has to happen there from writing to performance to what we see in screen. It's, I think it's different every time. I, like with Corey, that's a good example. That that story underwent a few different iterations before we sort of landed on, you know, what, what you see on television. So that person for me had a huge backstory, mm-hmm. um, a lot, a lot more than we see on screen, and then we had to sort of find small ways to insinuate things without, you know, devoting a whole scene to exposition sure, and yeah. stuff. You know, yeah, that's it's my not, favorite part of the show, though. Like mine that, too. Yeah, like yeah. it feels cool. Someone <laughs> mentions something that is about their life, but isn't like you know, when I graduated from oh, DePaul and moved back from Chicago, it's my least favorite when yeah. people do that and became an assistant district attorney. This is the kind of case I wanted to, you know. yeah, boo. I do not like that. <laughs> yeah. So, I, and nor do you. Like we're we're just. We're always looking for ways that we can condense. condense and, but you do have to start sort of on a bigger scale sometimes, and then keep stripping away, yeah. stripping away, stripping you away. You write and then, a whole scene, yeah. and then you're like, actually, maybe they can just get a text message and look upset. Yeah, <laughs> it's just that one, and then they're just gonna say these like five words, and you're gonna understand yeah. all of those other things. Yeah. yeah, we try to do that, but and I mean, sometimes we don't have as much of a backstory, and I think that it's su- our stories suffer when we don't know as much about the characters. Truly. Like if it's yeah. a, a it, maybe not if it's like a super like plot action-y driven story, but definitely on the ones that are more character driven, if we don't have our stuff straight, like if we don't really know these people, those are not the best episodes like at all. Very true. And a lot of times in order to create that depth, I mean, we do grab from situations or personal situations Mm -hmm. or kind of transpose it like much like a journal entry onto that and really trust that the audience can fill in the rest. Yeah. Which is nice. That's the best feeling. So there was a something of an exploration of, of the outside of the New York metropolitan area. And I guess by way of asking about like the future, do you ever see, I mean, it's kind of like heading out west or lighting out for the territories. I mean, that was, that was supposed to be last season. Yeah, yeah, we really wanted to come here. Yeah, yeah, that was supposed to be last season. And then I, uh, I mean, I bought that RV before we shot the last episode on a whim. And uh, I don't want it anymore if anyone wants to take it from me. <laughs> but uh, I definitely had it, illusions of... Dropping into a farmer's life in Kansas, yeah. and the guy drives through town, or like a, a, a poker dealer in Las Vegas, or something like that. But you know, the producers came up to me and they're like, "We can go out of town for one day <laughs> in New York State, so let's do that." Okay. And then that lake that you saw me paddleboarding on was in Staten Island. Yeah, uh, that <laughs> no we, land of lakes. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> who knew? Yeah. It's, and butter. And then uh, we went to Poughkeepsie for one day and then Stroudsburg or something like that. Slotesburg. Slotesburg okay. for a day. 
Okay. And that's it. Okay. But for maybe f- the future? Do you, I, mean, I hope the, so. Yeah. I feel like that is the way that if we were to keep doing this would be a way to, you know, keep it interesting. But on the other hand, I say that so and much. then I'm like, it is logistically so hard. And also I think people, uh, I think people are tuning in because they want to see New York yeah, life. Sure. I, mean, I think that's such a part of it. So. And we know New York life. I mean, that's like, all that's I so really know. That's what we can know. talk about yeah. with, with authority. But it's like, you know, the, after a while, the, the New York of the show becomes like— it, it's, it's It's the universe. It's like the Pacific Northwest of Twin Peaks. It's just like what it is, but, you know, like it just becomes its own huge sure. playground like that. Sure. I mean, I have great— But you amb- guys would like to like hang out in a different place probably. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes, yeah. yeah. I have great ambitions to see this show take place in other cities. Okay, cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm gonna let you guys go. Thank you so much for coming thank by you. and yeah. doing thank the podcast. You so much. And I love the show. So it's Man, we, thank you. Love you. I can't believe we're done. That would just started. <laughs> oh, yeah. 